Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of The Clueless Capitalist, where we help you discover interesting startups, interview founders, and help you become less clueless with angel investing. My name is Razi. And my name is Osman, and welcome to The Clueless Capitalist. In this very special episode, we're going to be talking with the team behind Accelerating Asia. Accelerating Asia is an early stage venture capital fund that runs programs for startups and investors they invest up to 250,000 US dollars in pre-series A startups and are one of the most active investors in Southeast and South Asia. So welcome to the episode, Craig and Amra. Thank you for Thank having, you us. having us. Um, right, so my name is Craig Dixon, originally from uh, the US. I, I started my career in banking, so high net worth wealth management with global banks like Merrill Lynch, Morgan Stanley, and Citigroup, and I had uh, no idea that when I pivoted into startups that that experience would actually come into play. Uh, But now that I'm kind of running a VC, a venture capital fund, a lot of our investors are fitting a similar profile that my clients at those big banks did. So that's a nice little recycling of of old skills, I guess. Anyway, after uh, after banking, I actually lost my job in the financial crisis, uh, and that's how I ended up in Asia. So I decided to take time off, got my MBA in Hong Kong, and then uh, totally didn't use that expensive MBA and instead built a startup. And that startup was a B2B travel technology company. We, we kind of spun our wheels for a while, but eventually got some traction and received investment from Wavemaker here in uh, Singapore in 2013. We also received money from the National Research Foundation of Singapore. And because it was taxpayer money, my investment document said the founders are required to reside in Singapore. And that's why I ended up living in Singapore was because I was required to by my investor. And I certainly don't regret it. It's been a wonderful uh, journey and, and a wonderful transition being here. We eventually sold that to Rakuten of Japan. And after that, uh, I was co-running the Murugi, uh Startup Accelerator, which was part of Telstra. And that's where Amr and I uh, connected. And uh, while that program uh, was going very well, I think the startups in that program had a lot of traction. We had some follow-ons from tier one VCs and and one of those has gotten to be um, uh, quite big and, and getting close to unicorn status. But Telstra itself was having typical kind of large telco challenges uh, and was laying off staff and decided that they were going to cut all of their startup programs. And so, well, I think the program was successful and I think Amr and I were really happy being there. Um, we had to find another way. And, and we decided that since the program was going so well, we might as well go ahead and do that ourselves. And so uh, literally the day after the Miradi program closed, uh, Amr and I set up Accelerating Asia. And that was just about four and a half years ago. Um, we kept most of the same premises around pre-series A and you know the stuff that you heard Rousey say in the introduction about us has been kind of the same since the Murabi days. Uh, but now that we're independent, you know, we've had to make changes like having a VC fund and doing things a little bit differently. And I think we've made a lot of positive improvements. We, we iterate just like a startup um, and, I, and we will continue to do so. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I guess that's a little bit about me and tying that back into Accelerating Asia. So over to you, Amar. So yeah, my name is Amra, um, Craig's co-founder. We are complete opposites <laughs> in every way, I think. But um, you know, I think that's a strength um, of of us. So while Craig comes from you know startup background, 
Um, I do not. Uh, this is actually the first business that I've started. I actually come from a marketing and operational background. So I used to work for an agency in Australia, um, got to work with some really big, awesome consumer clients, you know, the makeup, fragrance, alcohol ones, which are really great in your early 20s <laughs> when you're doing that kind of work. Ended up shifting over actually to Singapore a uh, little over 10 years ago. And the reason for that was I just wanted to try something new. There was no real plan in place. Uh, one of my friends had said to me that, you know, Singapore is a really awesome place. And the UN, which I'd always wanted to work for, had internships available. So I thought, you know what, let me try it out. Let me see if I can, um, you know, get established in Singapore. So I actually ended up coming for uh, leaving my job in Australia and coming over to Singapore for a three month internship with no guarantees of anything. Anyway, three months ended up being three years at UN Women and I was running their global social entrepreneurship program. And that's really what got me excited about working with entrepreneurs around the world, in particular entrepreneurs who are coming from emerging markets and using different types of business models to create impact in lots of different ways. And at the same time, I was using a lot of the skill sets that I learned um, in my agency job uh, and I was heading up corporate partnerships. So doing a lot of essentially fundraising for programs uh, around the world. So that's kind of that part. But I think what I realized is that, you know, working for the UN can be quite bureaucratic. <laughs> it's uh, not for everyone. Um, and I really wanted to kind of see what you could do if you're coming from the other perspective. And that's really what got me involved more in the startup world. So I started to do some freelance consulting work for incubators and accelerators and an opportunity opened at Marudi at Telstra. Uh, I ended up joining the team, uh, looking after the operational side of things. And my plan at the time was get in, learn as much as possible about the, the startup world and then get out and hopefully apply it to the social impact world in some way. I guess that kind of happened, but not in the, not in the way that I expected uh, with Accelerating Asia, you know, kind of forming the way that it did. But yeah, that's a little bit about my background. Great. I mean, uh, I think there's a lot of like startup stories here that you could take away from this, right? I mean, like everyone has a plan and then uh, as you progress, those plans change and you pivot and you move on. Just so long as you keep on moving, that's usually the, the main impetus for most startups that we've, we've come across. The, the question then really is, you know, more about Accelerating Asia. You all started off at Murudi and, and now you're at Accelerating Asia. Tell us a little bit more about how, how you came about founding Accelerating Asia and, and what, what makes it special here in region. I mean, I, maybe there's a, a good starting point here is um, when I was traveling to Africa to climb Mount Kilimanjaro and I was in a airport in Addis Ababa on a connecting flight. And what was happening was we were in the process of trying to sell Nurudi to another corporate. And so at the time we had one of the Fangs very interested. And I, while I was on my way to climb this mountain, we were taking calls and trying to triangulate 
budgets and approvals, and it had gone all the way to the to the USHQ. And at the last minute, I think I might have been in the in the airport in Africa when the HQ said said no, and that was like our last lead to um, to get Murdi officially bought or or taken over by another large company that could deal with the budget that 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 program had. And so when that failed, we had to make a decision. And I think we had like one month until we were out of a job. Like I, it was very short notice um, from the Telstra side. So yeah, I mean, I, I think Amr and I both had kind of put out feelers. Like, do we want to work for another corporate program? Do we want to do X, Y, and Z? I was thinking of, you know, do I want to do another startup? Um, but we kind of got together. And again, I guess to, to what I said before, I said, this thing actually works really well. What do we need to do? Um, to make it work without a corporate sponsor. And that was that was a big challenge because a version of what we're doing was done before and they essentially failed because the challenge with accelerators is that there's a lot of short-term expense, but the ROI typically comes from the equity in the startups, which on average in Asia or, or APAC is like an eight-year journey to exit, right? And, and so how do you pay for the short-term expenses while you wait for the ROI or the revenue that will come in much later? And obviously when you have a corporate parent, and I think that's why most programs were one of very few independent programs because most everyone else has a corporate or government to provide stopgap for that. So we have this like three-legged stool where we have the accelerator and we have the VC, um, but we, we needed uh, a place to drive revenues for those short-term um, operations. And that's that's a consulting side. So we have a consulting side of our business. And that's where we work with um, you know, corporates and governments and universities and NGOs. And we use the same learnings and experience from our core program to teach or, or run programs for startups that those people want to engage with. And so we already have experience in marketing and getting startups to apply to programs. We already have experience in how to filter those through and do interviews and selection. And then we obviously have experience in running programs. And so that that is um, transferable into uh, consulting projects. And those consulting projects drive revenue to the business as well, while uh, the other the other pieces work themselves out over the medium to long term. So I think that was that was like the crucial gap we had to um, or the crucial problem we had to solve. And, and in the meantime, we had to apply for a VC license from the Monetary Authority of Singapore. And I think that took about six months or so. And so, and then we had to try to convince people to put money into our our fund, you know, or brand new, who, who are these people? And why are we gonna give you a hundred thousand dollars or whatever? And and when you have no, you know, you have a little track record with a corporate program, but, and so it's it still kind of amazes me that in retrospect that so many people were able to, to trust us with their investment and, and trust that we would be able to execute well on it. And, um, you know, we, we owe them a lot. So, um, but, but yeah, let me uh, hand it over to, to Amra to fill in the gaps there. Yeah, I think, you know, when people ask me to reflect on this, I always think that if I had known that we would essentially be setting up three different businesses at the same time, at the time, I probably wouldn't have done it <laughs> because it just seems kind of crazy. <laughs> but I think everything that we did made logical sense at the time because it's like, okay, we, we know how to run an accelerator, so that's not really the problem. The problem is like short-term cash flow. So um, we were solving for that problem. And then the next problem became, 
okay, well, we should probably invest in the companies as well. So the next logical step is let's set up a fund. So everything just kind of came together in the, in the right way, I think. But, you know, looking back on it when people are like, how did you do it? And I'm like, I don't know how we did it. <laughs> the two of us for literally the first six months starting up like three separate types of businesses and like executing as well as trying to do the strategic thing at the same time is uh, a little bit crazy. But like Craig said, it, it all needed to happen in the way that it did because each of those single parts couldn't have worked without the other two parts. And they also just benefit and complement each other so well. They, they give each other credibility, really, um, and expand the network and expand the, the impact of what we're doing in each individual part, you know, obviously <laughs> by three times. So I'm glad it happened the way it did. And I'm glad I didn't know we were doing three businesses at the same time. <laughs> So ju just to recap, the three parts are the fund, so we have the accelerator, yeah, so and the, the consulting. Fund, the accelerator and the consulting. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Great. I mean, for for me, what really blows my mind particularly is I've looked at you know the complexity of setting up a fund. You know, you could argue it's pretty straightforward, but what's not straightforward is getting the credibility for LPs to come in and and participate in the fund i mean for, for me i just think you know the process and the paperwork is pretty straightforward but then just going out to people saying give me some money we've got this program and and for me that is usually the barrier to to sale uh, you know from the salesman hat i would look at that so i'm curious i mean how hard was it to get the first fund up and running and funded and getting it to work for accelerating asia was it easier than you thought or a lot harder than you anticipated? I think a little yeah. bit of both, right? <laughs> In different ways. Yeah, the admin was bureaucratic, but it's Singapore, so it wasn't too bad. So I think the, the admin side was, was okay. You know, we're basically a startup and we still are. And so you have all these chicken and egg, which is like, oh, Will you invest in our fund that will eventually invest in startups, but I can't show you any products right now because it's like, it's almost like you're a startup raising money before you have product, which I tell startups they shouldn't do. <laughs> but we were kind of doing that because we were like, for our first cohort at least, it was, a lot of it was trust with people who knew us from the Mirrody days, right? So they were, yeah. they'd seen how we operate, they'd seen our startups and they were like, okay, if you can just keep doing more of that, then I think that that's okay. And so I think we had that track record and that created trust for the first tranche of LPs. And, and for those that don't know, LP stands for limited partner. And that's kind of the name that you're given if you invest in a fund. Whereas the people that run the fund are general partners. And I, I don't know if we need to go down that, but I just thought we're gonna be throwing this lingo around, so I should probably yeah. define it. Um, but, but I think I think it's sales. I mean, I think, um, you know, if anybody uh, is out there as a founder and doesn't realize that being a founder is, is like 90 to 99% sales, you need to really look at yourself in the mirror and figure out if you're in the right occupation because you're, you're selling yourself, you're selling uh, your, your business and its potential and, and you're selling a dream and you have to come out as confident when you're not. Um, and it's it's all sales, um, and and so we had to do that too. I think 
certainly everything needs to be above board and, and true and, and genuine and you don't want to cross any moral lines there. Um, but you are basically selling something that, uh, you know, I'm not saying it was just a drawing or something, but it was it was selling something that was still being built and, and, and wasn't even there yet. Whereas now it's much easier in some ways because we say, hey, listen, we have 60 startups. You can go talk to them. You can see them pitch. There's all these videos of our demo days. You can come to events. We've got like 15 employees now where, you know, what we've talked about to date, it was literally just Amr and I for about six months doing this whole thing, running three businesses, right? So, I mean, we had so much support from people, but like, yeah, I mean, that that was crazy. So yeah, it was hard. It was chicken and egg. And there's so many ways that one thing not working out would have been the end of everything. But here we are. <laughs> Here you are. I mean, um, just out of curiosity, I think uh, Razi had a good question with regards to, you know, how a fund would work and what does it mean for a, a limited partner? Why would they invest into the fund? How would they realize the return? But I think that's generally for for new LPs. It's very vague. You know, we, we have the, the concept of, you know, investing in stocks and shares. We have the concept of being able to invest in an ETF. All of those kind of things are pretty run of the mill. But when it comes to this type of thing, it becomes a bit more opaque and uh, and there is a barrier to entry there. Do you just want to explain how the fund would work and how a, an LP would realize a, a return? What I've noticed the more I've been in VC is the similarities between equities and startup investing. Um, but there's obviously also quite a number of differences, right? So the similarities are, if you look at modern portfolio theory, whether it's in equities um, or, or other asset classes, um, but essentially the same, um, the same truth holds with startups, which is the more startups you have in your portfolio, on average, your returns on investment will be higher. Um, and that's the same as equity. So typically in an equity por portfolio, you need at least 40 stocks in an equity portfolio um, to, to realize the advantages of modern portfolio theory or just the easier word of diversification, right? So, and, and most people get that through uh, like an ETF or a mutual fund uh, or, or something like that, right? And, and, and so, and I, I know you mentioned some of those products. Um, in, in startups, um, people don't seem to focus on that as much, but I think they're beginning to. Um, and so VCs can actually operate a little bit like mutual funds for startup portfolio uh, investment. And so that means if you're looking to invest in startups, uh, it's similar to equities. You have two choices. You can invest in individual stocks or individual startups, or you can invest in kind of mutual funds and ETFs. And I think most of the data around equities shows that for the vast majority of people, uh, you're better off investing in a, uh, a mutual fund or an ETF. And certainly you can take a small pot of money that you don't mind losing and, and, and take a few bets on individual stocks. But generally it's not considered to be the best way to like actually plan in a financially responsible way, let's call it, right? And I think startups is somewhat similar. Like the data shows that once you get to 100 to 150 startups in a portfolio, you start to max out the portfolio effect. Um, and so for our current fund, which is our second fund, uh, we plan to have between 100 and 130 startups in that fund. And that means all of our LPs will automatically be taking advantage of that effect of, of the diversification leading towards um, higher performance. Now, with regards to the opacity, this is where things are different because um, VCs have unique abilities to basically have access to good deal flow. 
And so if you're an individual angel investor, like how do you find deal flow? Why would the best startup founders come to you um, and not go to a VC, right? Because the VCs typically have more money, they're more professional, they have websites, they have LinkedIn, they do events, they have infrastructure, employees, they do research. Um, you know, there's so much stuff that an angel can't compete with. The exceptions to this would be like super angels who maybe are were famous and had an exit and, at a unicorn and so everybody already knows them and they have a brand and, and they can kind of do it on their own. But for, for most of us, if we're just doing angel investing, I, I think it's similar to equities, you're better off potentially going in on a VC fund, getting access to that deal flow, having the VC kind of teach you certain things. Um, the other advantage I think that uh, a VC offers to an angel is every time there's a uh, legal document, a, a new round where they have to sign off on legal documents, the VC, you know, including Accelerating Asia, we have a full legal team that goes through those documents first and make sure all the numbers add up and all the terms make sense, both for ourselves and for the founders and for the other investors. And so usually our LPs, our investors will say, you know, hey, Craig, I just got this thing that this company wants me to sign, startup wants me to sign, um, you know, should I sign it? And I, and I usually say, hey, just hold off. Our legal team's going through a review right now. I'll keep you up to date. And usually they all wait until Accelerating Asia signs off until they sign off. Because if you had to do this yourself, you would maybe have to go out and get your own lawyer every single time and pay hundreds of thousands of dollars for every single time one of your startup portfolio companies raised a new round. Or you would just, I guess, sign it and hope for the best, right? So I think there's a, there's a nice um, CYA there that we would provide for our uh, investors. And I think maybe one thing I didn't clarify is a lot of our investors invest in our fund but then they also take some of their own personal money and they co-invest separately into some of our startups. And so we have every cohort, we have 10 or 15 startups and we have some LPs that every single time say, hey, Craig, like I wanna invest in three of these companies myself and they'll do the direct investment. And that's where, that's where it comes in on those follow-on rounds where we do all this legal due diligence and then we, we let them know if it's been diligenced properly and it's ready to go and then, then they can sign. So I think you know, the, main, the, the main advantages I think are number one, diversification that leads towards um, higher ROI usually. And then number two is like the deal flow. So getting access to these, um, to these startups. And so for our current cohort, cohort seven, we had almost 700 applications and we selected 10 startups. Right, so it's less than 1.5% acceptance rate. I think there's very few angels in the world that can compete with that, right? So that's just the advantage of institutionalization and having a professional business and, and all these people working on this, right? Um, and then the third one I kind of touched on, which is learning. A lot of folks that are trying to figure out how to be an angel investor, they can just learn so much by being integrated into the community and the process of, uh, of a VC. And so, you know, what is a term sheet? What is a cap? What is a discount? What is the liquidation preference? What is uh, you know anti-dilution clause? What is tag along, drag along? I mean, this was gobbledygook to me, you know, seven or eight years ago. Even when I was a founder, I didn't know half of this stuff. So, if you're starting out in angel investing, and by the way, most a lot of them have a full-time job and they're doing this on the side. I mean, I, it's 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 just it's a lot of work. So, so these are I think some of the helping hands that that we offer. Um, and I'll let maybe Amr dig into some of the mechanics and the timelines and and, and the cash flow and and all that good stuff. Yeah, all the fun stuff. <laughs> um, I guess basically, if you've you know you've had the conversation with the general partners of the fund, you've done your due diligence, and you've decided that you want to invest in a fund. There's a couple of mechanisms of how it works. So basically, what you'll have to do is sign paperwork. 
similar to signing um, a term sheet with a startup, you'll sign um, a subscription agreement with a fund, uh, which is essentially the same thing. Basically detailing, you know, the terms of your investment into the fund. And then every fund should have a governing document, which is called a limited partnership agreement. That basically defines, you know, how much fees the general partners can take or the fund administrator, whether the fund is audited or not, um, the life of the fund, basically everything to do with the fund, your obligations, as well as the fund administrator and the um, licensee of the fund, uh, which, you know, would be the general partners uh, and how they operate. So that would be needed to be signed. Once that's signed, you then go through the KYC process, um, which is pretty streamlined. Uh, hopefully for most funds is pretty streamlined because they'll appoint an external partner to help do that. Uh, it's literally just your identity, proof of address, that kind of stuff. Um, unless you're identified as a politically exposed person or someone coming from a high risk country or something like that, then obviously things get a little bit more complicated. But for the vast majority of people, it should be a very streamlined process. And in fact, there are a lot of fund administrators which kind of digitize the entire process. So it's super nice and quick and <laughs> hopefully a lot easier than investing in a startup <laughs> because um, as Craig said, you know, there's generally systems in place um, to help make it as easy as possible. Typically, the, the fund will have a life. For a VC, uh, the average fund life is about 10 years. And then it's called 10 plus one plus one, which basically means that you can have two one-year extensions on the life of the fund. And then the fund must come to an end. This is quite a bit longer than, say, a private equity fund, which is typically five to seven years. And then they try and you know, liquidate the entire fund after that and, you know, can be quite aggressive with how they do it. Depending on the fund that you invest in, there are different ways that, you know, uh, they can end the fund as well. And I think that also depends on, you know, what you're looking for and your timeline for investment and, and receiving returns. I think what's different about investing in a fund would also be the fees involved. So, Typically, there will be some kind of fees associated with your investment, um, and that will be taken out of the investment amount that you have and is generally over the lifetime of the fund. Um, there will also be something called carry, which is essentially profits shared from you know your returns. Uh, typically, those are 80-20, um, so 80% after you as an investor have received 100% of your money back. Um, of your initial investment back, any profits are then split between the general partners, 20%, and then the limited partners, um, 80%. This can be different, though. Every fund is very different. So, for example, with Accelerating Asia, our fees, our carry is actually tiered. So we're on a performance-based carry, which basically means if the fund performs much better, we get a higher share of the profits. But if it doesn't perform as well, we get a much lower share. And the whole idea there is to align ourselves with the limited partners. Apart from that, uh, generally, once you have invested in the fund, it's pretty hands-off for most funds. Uh, limited partners will just receive you know, sometimes a quarterly or an annual update. Maybe they'll be invited to, you know, portfolio calls and things like that. So that's generally with a lot of the big funds, they're quite 
I guess, hands off with their investment. With Accelerating Asia, it's a little bit different because we have the accelerator tied to what we do. So many of the LPs join our fund because they want to be hands-on with the companies. Of course, there are some that don't and, you know, they can just ride along, <laughs> like, you know, be a normal LP. But being part of the accelerator as well means that they can get involved with the selection process, so selection and recruitment or mentoring, or like Craig said, some of them directly invest in the companies as well. Um, so there are certain, I guess, additional benefits that LPs have when it's tied to an accelerator program that, you know, they can kind of pick and choose depending on how much time they have and the level of interest and engagement they want to have in the different companies. I think the final thing to note is that a little bit different from startups where you typically invest your money upfront, funds have something called capital calls. Depending on the fund size, you don't always put all your money up front. So if it's a much, much bigger fund, you know, they wouldn't expect you to put your 100 million, whatever, 50 million or whatever, right up front. Um, they would do a capital call, which means that you would um, tranche the money in based on a pre-agreed milestone or when the general partners do a capital call, you'll typically have about 30 days to transfer the money in. So that's something that's a little bit different compared to startups. I think that's hopefully all of the admin <laughs> and how it works. Yep. So I've had um, some of the viewers of the channel who have heard Accelerating Asia a number of times and they've been curious around investing in the fund. So someone recently asked me if they want to be an LP with uh, Accelerating Asia, what is the minimum amount before they can get themselves in as an LP? Yeah, so typically, because our fund is a little bit smaller than some other ones, the minimum check size for an individual would be 250k. And then for institutions, it's a little bit different because oftentimes they're requesting certain things as part of their investment as well. So the minimum for institutions would be a lot higher. That also means that, you know, as a VC fund, our fund is a little bit more accessible to angel investors and part of the reason for that is the stage that we're working at. Angel investors are oftentimes the first people to get involved in a good deal and you know scout a really great startup and are really good in terms of being part of and growing the actual startup community. So we did want to make it accessible to angel investors compared to some of the bigger funds which will have a much much larger ticket size and kind of make it a little bit more difficult to get involved. So for everyone who's watching, right, um, I think not everyone is aware of Accelerating Asia's uh, flagship program. So maybe one of you could share the flagship program and what it's all about. The flagship program is uh, a three-month program and it comprises a combination of some, I guess, templated and pre-organized material that all the startups get and then very customized sessions for the startups, depending upon their vertical, their maturity, and their individual needs. So I think something important um, that differentiates us, and I think is actually a really important part of our strategy is we do not have a vertical focus. So 
we accept any business model. Um, we are purely looking for the best founders that are running companies that can make a huge impact and become extremely large and obviously create a nice ROI for our investors. Um, beyond that, there aren't very many limitations. And so I think at the moment we have about 24 verticals represented in the portfolio across 15 countries. Um, and so a typical week, and we kind of have a weekly cadence to the program, a typical week has um, four or five uh, different blocks. And we, we take about six or seven hours a week of the founder's time. And the idea for us, because all the founders usually have a product and market, they have revenue, they have customers, they have running businesses. So this isn't going to be like a nine to five school or something like that. We need to let them have time to run their businesses while also adding value. And that's always been um, something that we've tried to do is strike that balance. Um, anyway, so on Mondays, we start out with a, a stand-up and that's like weekly goal setting where we help them understand what are the most important uh, drivers of their business um, to measure on a weekly basis and set goals for that. So examples could be um, number of units sold, revenue, 30-day trailing revenue, um, and number of investor face-to-face -face meetings, number of investment closed. These are kind of examples of the types of things that we would run through and set goals for. And then every week we hold the founders accountable in front of the group. And, and so they can learn, are they forecasting correctly? Are they focused on the right variables? Are they reporting and measuring things properly? Are they talking about their business in the most compelling way to help them drive things forwards? And then every single time they also have an ask. So what do they need from the cohort to the other founders? Like what, what could they possibly get help with on? Um, or the Accelerating Asia team or the greater Accelerating Asia community. So they always have to have an ask at these meetings. I think something that's really important is when we, when, when we do surveys of the value of our program for the founders, the number one thing, uh, the thing that gets ranked number one value is actually the other founders in the cohort. So unfortunately it's not me or Amra, or the Accelerating Asia team, we are ranked number two. Uh, number one is actually the other founders in the cohort that are adding value to them. And I think that's uh, something that's really important about being um, non-vertically focused because all the founders are doing different things in different markets and they all have different background skill sets and networks. And so therefore they can cross pollinate with each other uh, to drive value into each other's businesses. A lot of our startups end up buying each other's products uh, cross-selling each other's products on their platforms and otherwise partnering and working together. And I think that's actually one of my favorite things to see in our program. Okay, anyway, <laughs> that's Monday is the stand-up. And then Tuesday, we typically have a masterclass. And so that's where we usually bring in like somebody from the outside who has deep domain knowledge on a particular vertical that the cohort in general needs. And so for instance, next week, we have one of our favorite mentors coming in to do a deep dive on term sheets from VCs pitching to VCs and also the VC perspective of investing in startups. And so that's just like one of the most valuable sessions for the startup founders. We do different ones around pricing, marketing and comms. Um, Amra does a lot of training, uh, especially for the impact business models around how to correctly measure and report and communicate uh, impact, for instance, and things like that. So that's kind of the masterclass. We have a growth jam. The growth jam is focused on all things growth, growth hacking. Um, and sometimes we usually have one or two or three startups come with a specific problem. It could be they have a leaky bucket, uh, churn is too high, uh, retention is too low. Sometimes we do like cohort analysis training and, and things like that. We'll bring in alumni who are particularly good at certain things to help talk about um, how they got through challenges and things like that. And then every Thursday we have a tier one VC come in and our startups get to pitch. 
every single week to a decision maker, usually a GP at one of the big funds. Um, and obviously that's great to get feedback and questions from those funds. Uh, it's always great too when some of those funds invest in our startups. And so that's obviously a nice high value add for them as well. Um, and then we also do a one-on-one. -on -one. So a one-on-one -on -one meeting with our entrepreneur and residents. Currently uh, it's Alex Miller, who's had you know, uh, co-founder or top tier experience at, uh, at four uh, big startups, including one that exited to the New York Stock Exchange. And he's worked across China, the US, uh, Singapore, and, and now in Indonesia. And, and so his experience is invaluable to the startups. And that's where a lot of that customization comes into play, where he just deep dives into your business. I also do one-on-ones. I typically focus more on the, the pitching, investor communications, uh, strategic uh, strategy around fundraising, valuation, terms. And then the other thing I, I often work on is like multi-market strategy. So you're in the current market, what's the next market, why, and how to talk about that. Investors typically want to know, number one, that you're growing really fast and you have great momentum and that you have really uh, uh, big eyes. You have ambitions to be a really big company. And usually that means you're going to eventually have to go cross border. So being able to talk about that and having a believable narrative early is really important. Um, so I think I think that's kind of a week in, in accelerating Asia. Um, we obviously do like our big demo day at the very end where we have around 200 investors come and all of our startups pitch and do the networking and things like that. Um, we have changed our program to a hybrid program. So we just had um, our seventh cohort uh, spent a week in Penang and we had workshops and we met with investors and then we flew back to Singapore and had an event here with investors and they all get to know each other and, and bond. We had a nice like yacht trip in, in the water and, and all that stuff and they get to know each other and, and start forming those relationships that are so valuable as we kind of talked about before. So. Um, I, I think that's kind of the structure and, and the types of things we help them with. But even outside of that, it's we have a Slack channel and we have our alumni and our LPs and our mentors that are always like connecting with the founders and helping them in different ways. Um, so, and I'm sure I missed some stuff. So let me maybe have Amra fill in a gap or two if I missed anything. Yeah, I think you pretty much got it. I think one big piece that we work on very closely with all the companies is their governance. And many of these companies are trying to raise funds from big institutional investors and yet don't have entities or employment agreements and things like that. And so obviously a big you know, trust indicator <laughs> is having good governance and it does definitely make things easier if you're an institutional investor and a company comes to you and they have a beautiful data room They've got, you know, all of their incorporation documents. They've got a great structure. It makes it a lot easier for you to invest in them. I mean, even as an angel investor, right? If you're seeing something like that, you're like, okay, this, this founder knows what they're doing. I can trust them. Uh, so that is a lot of what we work on. Oftentimes we are one of the first institutional investors to go into some of these startups and so they don't know about different terms they don't know about different incorporation structures they don't know about you know what to put in a data room and the whole idea is that you know at the end of an accelerating asia program we can graduate these companies and they, they're a beautiful beautifully packaged company and if an investor does say no to them it's not because you know they didn't have things structured properly it's because you know it's maybe not an investment focus for them right now there's you know some tangible feedback as opposed to just being 
that will pass because that's just too complicated of an investment for us, right? Um, so yeah, we, we spend a lot of work on that. I mean, it's clear from what uh, both of you have shared how valuable the program is for the startups. And I know that Accelerating Asia is very, very selective in choosing the startups. I think Craig just mentioned earlier that uh, for the latest cohort, there were 700 applicants and only 10 were selected. So my question is, when you interview these startups or when you select the startups, what do you look for in these startups that become part of the cohort? So the process itself is we take enrolling applications. Um, so at any point in time, a founder can submit an application to us and we'll start to take a look at it, even if we're not currently recruiting. We then have kind of a, a second tier of applications. So when we are actively recruiting, we'll open up, you know, the proper horrible, you know, 20-page, very diligent kind of application process. Um, and startups that have submitted information to us before obviously get um, earlier access to this kind of application form. They get reviewed quicker because, you know, we just have more information about them um, sooner. We, in the past, used to get complaints about the length of our application form. And it's really funny because it actually filters out, like that. that is essentially the first filter, right? If you can't spend the time to answer these questions, then maybe this is something that you don't want to be investing your time into. So that's kind of the first level filter. If I could just jump in, it's, it's also like all stuff you should already have if you're talking to investors. So it's like, how much revenue do you have? How do you talk about your business in like one minute? So we've had startups that have completed the whole thing in like 15 minutes before, right? Because they just already had everything ready to go. So I think to Amr's point, it's, it's a great filter because it's like you're either unprepared or you're not willing to put in the work to have this stuff, which you should have anyway. Yeah. And I mean, you know, even for startups that find the form difficult to fill in or a little bit too early for us, I always encourage them to just go through the process anyway, because now you know the kind of questions that investor is probably going to be asking. And even if you don't have the answers to it right now, at least you can start to prepare for it, you know, come back again, apply again, or, you know, better prepare yourself for an investor pitch. As an example, we've had one startup apply three times, uh, went through the entire process three times, and we ended up, you know, taking them in on the third time because we'd seen the progress across, you know, all of the applications <laughs> that put into us. Um, so yeah, that's the first process. Every application has at least two pairs of eyes on it. So we, we look at it quite thoroughly. Um, and we filter those applications down to basically a 10 minute call. So you'll have a first round call with someone from our team just to confirm everything that you've put in your application and you'll be amazed at how some things change <laughs> uh, for, for the better and oftentimes the worse uh, when we have these calls. Um, it's literally just a quick due diligence check to make sure that, you know, the stuff that you've put in the application actually makes sense um, and that you can back it up uh, when we, we ask you it in person. After that, we have, I guess, interviews. So that will be with myself, Craig um, and Alex, uh, sometimes with a mentor, uh, but usually with the main entrepreneur in residence for the program. These go for about 20 to 30 minutes. 
and it is really fast. <laughs> we we go through and we've already already gone through, you know, all of your applications at that point. We've already got intel about you as a founder and, you know, some of the stats that, you know, you would have reiterated to whoever you spoke to on your quick 10-minute call. And so the point of these 30-minute calls is to just really understand your business as quickly as possible. So yeah, they can be quite fast-paced and you know, we often have to interrupt founders because we, we just need information really quickly on how things work. Um, but it is a lot of fun. I think we all learn a lot during that process. After that, about 25 to maybe 35 companies will be invited to something called Selection Week. Selection Week is where we invite our limited partners, some of our top mentors, VCs, angel investors, uh, and industry experts to meet with the founders that we have shortlisted. So typically a founder will go through about anywhere from like eight to 15 phone calls during this week where they're interviewed by these people. And we use all of this information that we're getting from everyone to kind of <laughs> cross-reference and see which founders that you know we'd like to invite into the, the program. Uh, and so some of the things that we are assessing here is obviously the industry experts, right? We're a sector agnostic program. So there's no way that Craig and I can know every single industry, uh, which is why we will invite industry experts to come in and specifically meet with certain companies uh, and give us their input on them. The limited partners as well are especially useful because, you know, we want to see like, specifically which are the companies that you're interested in investing um, in and why. And if we can align it with the companies that we select in the, the batch, then that's a win for everyone. Uh, and then obviously investors, right? Because at the end of the day, one of our success metrics is can the company fundraise after our program or even during the program? So if there is investor interest during selection week, then that's a good indicator for us. And selection week in itself, yes, it's a really tough interview process, I think. And it can be pretty hectic, especially for, you know, some of our South Asian founders, you know, they'd be joining the calls at 6 a.m. because of the time difference. It is uh, productive for them. We've had business deals come out of it, investors go on and, you know, invest in these companies as well. So it is productive. After that, we will um, invite between eight to 12 companies, on average 10 companies to join the batch. And that's when we start our paperwork process. So I hand over to Craig to talk about what we look for. Thank you for that. Yeah, so I think we look for a lot of the stuff most investors look for, but there's also something interesting and, and maybe a little bit unique that I'll talk about after that. So I think kind of the standard things that most people look for is, you know, is this a big problem, right? Because you have to be solving a big problem for there to be a big revenue, right? So this is a big problem to be solved. Is the market big? Um, is the potential to monetize per user big? You know, what does the market look like? What does the problem look like? So I think these are pretty standard things. The other one is momentum. So no matter how old the company is, um, are they growing fast? Are they moving in uh, the right direction to where they could potentially be what we're looking for is a 20x company. So when we invest in a company, I need to see a clear path. So 20 times in their, uh, the valuation that I'm investing at. So I need to see a clear path to that. So what's your strategy to get there, right? And then there's uh, founder startup fit, right? Or the team. 
are these the right people to be doing this business and why? And so one kind of question I would ask myself in the circumstances, if I did this and I had money, let's say I had $5 million, could I beat you at this? Or do you have something that I can't copy or buy? Right, so what do you have? Do you have IP, knowledge, networks? Have you been doing this for 15 years? Has your family been doing this for three generations? You know, what is what is that unique value proposition that the humans have uh, that somebody else can't buy or copy, right? So that's, that's actually really important. There's also startup geography fit. We've had startups that come into the program or apply to the program and I'm saying, this is a great product, but you won't be able to monetize this appropriately to get to scale in the market in which you're operating. And it's interesting to see what the founders, how they react when you tell them that maybe they should just move to another country because they'll be more successful there. But that's sometimes the truth. You might just be in the wrong market, but you have a great product and a great team. So a lot of things really have to align. And then we love to see impact. Um, so because we mainly operate in emerging markets, a lot of our startups kind of automatically have impact, but uh, also love to see uh, impact embedded into the business models, whether that's kind of gender lens or financial inclusion, uh, creating like new economy jobs for people in emerging markets and things like that. It's really uh, a nice icing on the cake for us. I think with regards to kind of the, the less uh, quantitative or the less kind of analytical things, because we come in at a fairly early stage, there's usually less tangible stuff to work with, right? Like the business that you're seeing today most likely will be very different, if not completely different in three years. And so it's hard to put too much weight on the business. You have to put most of the weight on the founders themselves. And so now that we've been running accelerators for the past six years, we've developed um, some kind of behavioral analytics around certain behaviors that founders exhibit that tend to drive outperformance compared to other people. And I'll talk about two of those things. We have quite a number of them, but two of the things that we've noticed that the best founders have, uh, a number one is extremely quick turnaround on communications. And so this is, um, I say, hey, what was your revenue three months ago? And they, they tell me right away. They don't say, oh, let me get back to you tomorrow with a, with some, after I do some research. Or, or I ping them on Slack and say, hey, you haven't signed this document yet. And they say, oh, I will get right on it and have it to you by tomorrow. And they follow through on that. Um, you might call this like conscientiousness if you're into kind of the, the psychology uh, realm, but essentially it's, 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 it's also speed. And so the best founders will reply to things within a few hours. Uh, the tier two ones will reply within 24 hours and then it kind of drops off from there. And so this is, this is something we look for. And then the second one, which is a little bit related, I think also to the conscientiousness framework is knowing their metrics. So understanding which metrics are the most important uh, to drive their business forwards and focusing on those almost above everything else. Um, and number two, kind of like I mentioned before, knowing them inside and out. So what were your metrics in January, June, and what will they be uh, next January and next June and why? So knowing your metrics um, and knowing uh, the forecast and knowing what they were historically is a kind of a signal of how well you actually understand your business, right? So what have you learned and how has your business changed based on learnings? We tried this and it completely didn't work, but we learned something else. And that's why we now have this product or this feature and that therefore, and that has driven 20% extra revenue since we implemented it. Like I love stories like that, right? And then the last thing I'll mention is, why are you doing this? We need to have founders that are extremely passionate about what they're doing. Startups are really, really hard. And most people, when they get to the hardest points of startups, will give up. 
And I need to know that if we're putting our investors' money into your bank account, that you're not. Like, you're going to see this through no matter what. And in order to have that passion to see it through, you need to have some sort of emotional connection to this business, right? And so it could be a lot of things for some people. I've seen, I mean, the most extreme cases are, you know, my friend died because of this. And so I created this medical device that means other people won't die. I mean, that's just like in a crazy extreme example, which is a real example. Um, but you don't have to have that. You could just be really passionate about building a business and having something tangible that you can you can say that you put your name on and, and you're solving this big problem. That's okay. I think that was probably my, my story, which is much more boring than the one I relayed before. But what is your passion for this business? And some VCs will actually ask you directly. Some will just kind of try to sense it out through, how, through the conversations they have with you. But I think every founder, if you don't know the answer to that question, you're also kind of not there yet yourself because you shouldn't be running a startup if you don't have passion for it. Like most founders could make much more money. They could have much less stress, much more free time, much better relationships outside of work. Like it's really hard. And so why are you like, you know, making all these sacrifices to do this? You really should have a clear answer for why you're doing that and, and what it means. And you'll probably fail. And you need to have unreasonably optimistic expectations that even though the data says you're probably going to fail, you know, you're not right. It doesn't even make any sense. Um, and so I, that's kind of the last thing maybe I'll end on. But I think for founders, you know, have all that stuff together, have a plan, know your metrics, um, work on your communications. I mean, we we about I don't know if it's 50 percent, but a huge portion of our program is focused on communications, effectively and succinctly communicating your points. And so to Amra's point about interviews, all of these interviews could be done in 15 or 20 minutes if the founders were able to efficiently communicate. And by the end of our program, that same interview will take five to 10 minutes. But, you know, many founders just haven't been trained on this stuff yet. And so, you know, it takes longer. And I'm, I'm droning on here, so I, maybe I need to be more efficient. But, um, but yeah, maybe I'll, maybe I'll just end there. What I could add there is that uh, one of the things why we resonated so strongly with uh, Arifin was because of that personal emotional connection that he had about why he was building uh, MedEasy and coming up with this online pharmacy in Bangladesh. It was so powerful that I think all of us who listened to the story really connected and really resonated with it and we all wanted to invest afterwards. Yeah, I think that's great. And maybe it's a good time to talk about you know, our tagline as, as kind of signing off. But I think the Arifin story is something that really resonates with us. And, you know, we've had this tagline from day one, which is, you know, entrepreneurs are one of humanity's greatest catalysts for positive change. And I think Arifin is a great example from MedEasy of somebody who is practicing that in motion and, and aligns perfectly with kind of what Accelerating Asia is all about. So, you know, thank you for, for bringing that up. Check out our website. We do regular events. If you want to come join the community, see some pitches, you can follow us on you know, all the regular social media stuff. Um, as Amra, I think, you know, mentioned a few times, because we are an accelerator in addition to VC, you know, community is a really huge part of what we do. And we now have, you know, 60 startups, I think 120 plus founders. Um, we have, uh, you know, over 50 LPs now and growing. We have a whole mentor network. And so, you know, we're continually building out the ecosystem and trying to find ways for everyone to add value to each other. And so for those of you that are out there, whether you haven't invested in any startups, whether you've invested in 10, if you're a founder, if you're an aspiring founder, you know, we hope that you can find value by plugging into the, to the Accelerating Asia ecosystem. So, so, so that's my call to action. It's my ask, join us on our mission. Um, and uh, we look forward to hopefully seeing you soon online or, or in person. Right. Ralphie, do you want to wrap up? 
think that was a really good way to wrap up actually all right okay well we're done then <laughs> <laughs> um, i want to thank you guys too i mean i really love what you yeah. guys are doing to promote like uh founders like getting their stories out in front of but also um helping people maybe feel more comfortable to take that first step and become an angel investor i think you know angel investors are so important to founders because they typically can't access that institutional capital when they're very new and one of the challenges especially in like emerging markets or up and coming markets is both the founders and the investors don't really know what they're doing and so there's like this friction they don't have the standardization and it's really important you know we we try to help facilitate that to get to more standardization and educate and i love what you guys are doing too to add to that to help people feel more comfortable to take that first step and maybe invest and also for some of the founders to maybe get access to potential investors and other folks that they wouldn't have normally so uh you know thank you and obviously thank you for today and, and helping us get the message out about accelerating asia Uh, it's our pleasure and uh and just to follow on from that I've actually uh lined up faith as well to go through like safe notes convertible notes and all that kind of stuff so that we can at least remove that other barrier where people are saying right, how what does this paperwork mean and how yeah. is it normal is it is it unusual and uh hopefully get people familiar with that so that's one of the other activities that we've got lined up and uh And yeah, hopefully with this and with Faith doing her talk as well then we we should have like a a very good way to cover off both the the technical aspects of fund uh, the fund management and accelerators and and the paperwork for angel investors and and what they need to be aware of and what to watch watch out for. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Faith is great. Everybody should definitely tune yeah. in for that.